to the Uproom Frisco podcast. To learn more about your Frisco, please visit uproomfrisco.com. Oh, happy Advent season. It's good to be back together again to talk about the coming of our Lord. Let's pray and uh, just continue to give the Holy Spirit rule and reign in first place in this, in this teaching. Holy Spirit, you're already here, but we choose to acknowledge you. We choose to turn our attention on you. We thank you that you are the one that teaches us all things and reminds us of everything that the Lord has said. We pray that you'd do that very thing this morning, that you'd lead us into truth, that you would invigorate our hearts with the glory of the gospel, with the glory of the incarnation, with the glory of the resurrection, with the glory of the ascension, with the, the glory of our inclusion in you, Jesus. We love you. Amen. Amen, amen, amen. Last week was fun. I, um, we, we started talking about what Advent is, which Advent just means the arrival of a notable person, the most notable of all, of course, being Jesus. And he had a, a very important herald by the name of John the Baptist, who we talked about last week. And, um, and we, I, I, I just want to give you just a really brief recap. Mentioned how John's message was prepare a way or prepare a path in the wilderness. And any Israelite listening at that time would know that that, that phrase right there is rife with historical meaning. That phrase is like a hyperlink. You know what a hyperlink button is? Like when you're cruising the internet and you, you see that it's lit up and you click on it and a whole world of meaning opens up. It takes you to a another page that explains that. Well, any Israelite in that day, if they heard prepare a path, they would have immediately started thinking about when Israel was delivered from Egypt through the Red Sea and the Lord led them through the wilderness. And here's John, a voice crying in the wilderness. And where is he actually speaking from? His feet are in the Jordan River, which every Israelite would know that that was the pathway into the promised land. So, and John is even dressed up like one of the heroes of their faith, Elijah, Elijah who wore a, a cloak of camel's hair and a leather belt. Well, John the Baptist comes along and he is dressed the same way. And he's this new Elijah and he's proclaiming that there is going to be a new deliverance, a new exodus, and it's gonna be bigger and better than the physical one of Israel from Egypt. It's gonna be bigger and better because it's gonna be all of humanity being delivered from the greatest oppressor of all sin and death. And so his, his message was prepare the way because someone even more important than me is coming, a new Messiah. It's like a new type of Moses, a new deliverer. And when Jesus showed up, he said, behold the lamb who takes away the sin of the world, the one who would carry our infirmity, the one who would reconcile us back to the heart of God. And uh, there are so many things that I love about the Advent season. I think that for me, it's, it's a time of refocusing. It's a time to allow the Lord for, for rekindling. It's a time to simplify. We take time off work. We, uh, we splurge on feasting and celebrating, which mirrors what's going on in the heavens, the celebration and the feast that's going on in the heavens. We gather together with family 
And, and I love just being reacquainted with the glory and mystery of the gospel. I love looking back at the way he intentionally came, at the way he intentionally lived, at the way he laid down his life and came back from the dead and the ascension. It's all just so glorious. It's too much for the human mind to comprehend, but we get all of eternity to dive into that mystery. I love looking back at how he came. I love looking around at how he is currently coming, and I love looking forward to his ultimate return. Is anyone with me with that kind of excitement? (laughs) It makes sense that we get to see how he came. We get to see how he is currently coming in our lives, and we get to ultimately see how he will come again because he is the God who was and is and is to come, is he not? In fact, one of the titles of Jesus is the radiance of the Father. Another word for that, I think it's the Greek is apagasma, which is just a cool word to say. It doesn't make any difference this morning whatsoever, but he is the apagasma of the Father, which means he is proceeding forth like a continual river of delight from the Father, like a continual emanating, being the very image of God. And so he is continually coming in our presence. And I love that we get in this season to look back at how he did come in the incarnation, which is just mind-blowing, right? I mean, just let's nerd out for a second together. We have Yahweh, God, who is bigger than the universe. He's Mr. Creation. He's Mr. Existence. All things exist in him, right? So like, This is gonna flip your wig a little bit. God doesn't live in heaven. Heaven lives in God, okay? Everything is, and it says that all things were in Christ. All things were created by him, for him, in him, through him. Like he is enormous. But the word enormous doesn't really encapsulate it because somehow the enormity of God was put in a microscopic seed. And all the force of creation itself, all the mystery and love and power of God found its way into the womb of Virgin Mary. And so now you have seed of God, an egg of woman, coming together to rejoin God and man. Isn't that just insane? It's as if God somehow took all of him and injected them into, it's like, like what is it, Aladdin? Great cosmic power in itty bitty living space, you know? He came to undo the domain of darkness and to bring the true kingdom, to swindle the great swindler and to take back all power from the usurper, that serpent named the devil who deceived Adam and Eve. And for thousands of years, his beloved ones, his creations, the one, the ones that it, that he created to give and receive affection. His kids, we have been under bondage through our fear of death. We've been under the bondage of this devil. And he came to set us free so that he could have his family back together again. So 
what is the domain of darkness and what is the kingdom of heaven, right? If Jesus came to bring the kingdom, what does that mean? Well, Adam and Eve were created in God's image and they were given stewardship over planet earth. If you are wondering what you were called to do, you are called to rule the world. That's, you're called to take dominion, to co-labor, to co-reign, to co-rule with Christ, to make the kingdoms of this world look like the kingdoms of our God. You are called to help fulfill the prayer of Jesus, which is your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Congratulations. That's who you are. You are princesses and princesses, princes. you are sons and daughters of the living God. You, there, you are the, the benefactor of intergalactic nepotism. Your dad is the CEO of the universe, okay? You have an unfair advantage over everything else, okay? <clears throat> So Jesus came to undo the domain of darkness. What happened in the garden is Adam and Eve who were created to co-rule earth with God were deceived by the serpent and in that process became slaves to sin. They introduced sin to creation which didn't just affect them, all of creation was subject to futility because you become a slave to whatever you obey. And so in that moment, essentially, they took the, the crown of authority that they were given, the crown of glory that they were given, and they handed it to someone else named the serpent. And the serpent had a whole different way that he wanted to rule the earth, didn't he? And we immediately started to see the, the dealings of the domain of darkness. We saw sickness we saw death, we saw famine and lack, and even uh, natural disasters, everything was thrown out of whack. And so when Jesus came along, what did he do when he saw sickness? He healed it. What did he do when he saw demonic oppression? He cast it out and he said, if I drive out demons, by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So he was operating in so much power and so much identity in his sonship that even his, his pinky finger could drive out the darkest demons, right? And he said, this is yet another sign that the kingdom has come upon you. What did he do when he saw lack? If, if they needed to pay taxes, they went fishing, didn't they? and they pulled gold coins out of fish's mouth. If they had a conference and they totally under-budgeted for food. <laughs> In that moment when 5,000 people show up and they only had enough food for a couple people, what did he do when there was famine, when there was lack? Well, he multiplied food. Can you imagine how terrifying this must be for the enemy who for thousands of years got to do whatever he wanted to do and inflict his rule and reign on, on humans however he wanted. And then all of a sudden this guy who was born from Bethlehem grows up a carpenter's son, starts effortlessly undoing all of his works. Just going around saying, you shouldn't be sick, be healed. You shouldn't be dead, be raised. 
<laughs> it's terrifying for the enemy to have the domain of darkness stripped from his fingers systematically by this man who just loves everyone. How annoying must that be? <laughs> and on top of that, Jesus is empowering disciples who weren't born of God's seed from heaven. They're just normal dudes. And he's putting his, the authority of his name and they're coming back rejoicing saying, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And Jesus is like, that is right. But you know what's even cooler than that? Your name is written in heaven. How terrifying, frustrating, and annoying that must be for the enemy. Could you imagine the, the, the pickle that he's in? Because here comes Jesus demonstrating the true kingdom of heaven, undoing the domain of darkness. And if he lets him live, he's just going to keep doing that. And it's, it's going to spread like wildfire. And so, and, but he also doesn't know what's going to happen if he kills him. And so he's like, he's like, well, I'm just going to kill him. And then in uh, 1 Corinthians 2.8, you read this incredible line where it says, oh, if the rulers of this world knew what they were doing, they never would have crucified the Lord of glory. They put the king right where he wanted to go. They had no idea that when they stripped the flesh off of Jesus, the spirit within him would infect humanity. And then Satan would have an army of representatives of love to deal with. These are glad tidings indeed. This is good news. So Jesus comes and, um, and there are just so many incredible prophecies in scripture. Uh, this more like a pastor's job during Christmas is actually kind of hard. We know what we're supposed to do, but we don't know like where to start. Because if you go through the Bible, there are dozens of prophetic verses talking about Jesus' coming. There are dozens of prophecies talking about Jesus' life. There are dozens of prophecies talking about his death and resurrection and his return. And so what I wanted to do today was a little bit, something a little bit out of the box. I wanted to look at a more obscure verse, but it's one of my favorites talking about the coming of our great king, and it's found in Daniel chapter 2. Uh, the, one of the reasons why this is more obscure than some of the other prophecies about Jesus' coming is because of the way it came. This prophecy didn't come to a hero of our faith. This prophecy came to an enemy of Israel. In fact, he was a demonized, Satan-worshipping, necromancing, heathen king that defeated Israel and put Israel under his ruthless reign. And I'm talking about a guy named Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon who defeated Israel. And Daniel was like a, a youth, a teen when this happened. And he saw any of the, the young men that the king saw promise and he would take and make his own servants and teach them the ways of Babylon. And some of them would become his own wise men. And Daniel was uh, so distinguished in his wisdom and would just shine with so much of the presence of God that Daniel was quickly working his way up the ranks, along with other famous dudes named Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I was, 
I often tell my kids when it's bedtime, I say, what's the Lord's, uh, uh, how did I phrase it? It's like, what's, who are the Lord's favorite um, bedtime heroes? And they're like, dad, not again. Shadrach, Meshach, and to bed we go. <laughs> so Nebuchadnezzar has this dream in the night, and it's so terrifying, it's so vivid, it's so weighty that he can't sleep. Sleep leaves him, and he has to know the meaning of this dream. And being a very spiritual dude, he knows that there are spiritual mysteries to be derived from dreams. He has wise men around him, you know, to um, counsel him in ways of, of spiritual stuff. These wise men and astrologers and, and diviners or diviners, however you want to say it, that magicians around him. And so he calls in those guys, all the wise men, and he says, I need you to tell me uh, this dream and the meaning of it. And they're like, okay, cool. Well, tell us the dream and then we'll tell you the meaning. And Nebuchadnezzar's like, no, y'all are special. And I think that you've just been yanking my chain for years now. You tell me the dream and the interpretation or else I'm going to cut you into pieces. Talk about like (laughs) high pressure ministry. And so the wise men are like, there's no one who can do this. And the king's like, well, you're going to die then. And so he, Nebuchadnezzar actually issues an edict, and all the wise men are going to, put to be put to death. And this includes Daniel and his buddies. Well, Daniel catches word of this, and he asks for just a little bit of time. And they're granted a little bit of time. And that very night, Daniel has a vision from the Lord, and the Lord shows him vividly the very dream of this heathen king that defeated Israel and its meaning. And it is an incredible section of scripture. So this is Daniel 2, and I'm going to read through a bunch of this and we'll skip around, but let's start in verse 27. This is Daniel before Nebuchadnezzar. And he says, Nebuchadnezzar, no wise man Enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he has asked about. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in days to come. Your dream and the visions that pass through your mind as you were laying in bed are these. As your majesty was lying there, your mind turned to things to come, and the revealer of mysteries showed you what's going to happen. As for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because I have greater wisdom than it. He's like really setting this up, isn't he? Like, <laughs> not because I have greater wisdom than anyone else alive, but so that your majesty may know that the interpretation and that you may understand what went through your mind. Your majesty looked, and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold and its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of clay and partly of baked clay. So now we're like head, shoulders, knees, and toes. Like we're getting the the idea of what this (laughs) statue looks like. While you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. So this... A rock was cut out from somewhere, and it was not cut out by a man. And it struck the statue on its feet 
of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were all broken into pieces and became like chaff on the threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace. But the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream, and now we will interpret it to the king. Your majesty, you are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. In your hands, he has placed all mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds of the sky. Wherever they live, he has made you ruler over them all. You are that head of gold. After you, another kingdom will arise, inferior to yours. Next, a third, one of bronze, will rule over the whole earth. Finally, there will be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, for iron breaks and smashes everything. And as iron breaks things to pieces, so it will crush and break all of the others. Just as you saw that the feet and toes were partly of big clay and partly of iron, so this will be a divided kingdom. Yet it will have some of the strength of iron in it, even as you saw iron mixed with clay. As the toes were partly of iron and partly of clay, so this kingdom will be partly strong and partly brittle. And just as you saw the iron mixed with baked clay, so the people will be a mixture and will not remain united any more than iron mixes with clay. And here's the turning point. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed nor will it ever be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it itself will endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of the mountain, not by human hands, a rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true and its interpretation is trustworthy. Then the king Nebuchadnezzar fell prostrate before Daniel, paid him honor, and ordered that an offering and incense be presented to him. The king said to Daniel, surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and the revealer of mysteries, for you were able to reveal this mystery. Then the king placed Daniel in a high position and lavished many gifts on him. He made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon and placed him in charge of all its wise men. Moreover, at Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego administrators over the province of Babylon, while Daniel himself remained at the royal court. Very cool story, right? I want to unpack its meaning because I'm not sure a lot of us have, have heard um, this in, in detail. Can you put up that, that slide that I sent you? I drew this. You're welcome. So this, <laughs> this is the very statue that he saw in his dream, right? <laughs> and Daniel, is, he's interpreting it, and he says, you, you are the head of gold, or the Babylonian empire is the head of gold. The chest and arms are made of silver. And so if you actually look through history, there are four kingdoms in a row, just like Daniel prophesied. And this would all happen long after his death. It's very cool. So the Medo-Persian is the, is the next uh, empire, and then it has a, a belly and thighs made of bronze. That's the Greek. And then um, the legs of iron with the feet that are mixed, they're both iron and clay. That's the Roman Empire. 
And we know that the, the Romans, they were known for taking over a territory, but often they would leave the old ruler in place as long as they uh, you know, like were subject to Rome, like came under Roman dominion. They would leave those kings often in place and then just make that area look like Rome. And then the, those other kings would pay money and honor uh, to, to Rome. And so the Roman Empire was huge, but it was very mixed, which means that there was eventually going to be uh, a break. And I love how Daniel even says, in the days of those kings, plural. It's not, there's not just one king. And so Daniel is having this incredible uh, revelation of the time when Jesus would show up. And he's saying that a rock is going to be hewn from the heavens and thrown to the earth in the time of Roman rule. And it's going to shatter. It's going to bring to nothing all of these other kingdoms. And it's going to grow into a mountain that will endure forever, which is exactly when Jesus was born in the time of Roman rule. Psalm 145 puts it like this, your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures through all generations. Isaiah 9, 7 puts it like this, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to, or, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that same time forward, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. So Jesus, one of his names is the rock of ages, right? The chief cornerstone. This is the rock that you don't want to fall on you. This is the rock that you want to stand on, that you, we all want to fall upon this rock, that he would become our foundation. He's even called the stumbling stone for the Jews. And he talks to Peter at the, before his ascension, and, and when Peter recognizes that Jesus is the Christ, Jesus actually says to Peter, upon this rock, upon the rock of the revelation that I am the Christ, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, and I will give you the keys to the kingdom. See, Jesus is interested in empowering his kids to demonstrate the kingdom the exact same way that he did. In fact, it says in, in Ephesians 4, 11 through 13 that he gave the apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body to do the work of the ministry until we all attain to the same stature of Christ. In other words, he has empowered us to continue to bring his kingdom until the day that we look just like him until the church on planet earth is functioning in the same kind of power that Jesus functioned in. Isn't that an incredible thing to look forward to? And of the increase of his kingdom, there will be no end, which means that the light is getting brighter which means that his power is becoming known. It's not just that his glory fills the earth. His glory has already filled the earth, but the knowledge of his glory is filling the earth. The kingdom of God he placed inside of us. He even said things like, 
If someone tells you the kingdom's over there, don't listen to them. If someone tells you you gotta go to that conference to get the kingdom, don't listen to them. I tell you the truth, the kingdom is within you. If you turn within, you will see the seed of Christ, the mark of the maker within your very own heart. So from the fall, creation has been groaning. Since the time that Adam and Eve were deceived and the usurper took over, there's been a longing for the one who would come and reinstate rightful rule. The groaning of humanity and creation, the groaning for creation to see humanity ruling the way that we were meant to rule. There's this anticipation for the coming Messiah. The, um, the first gospel that was written is, well, everyone argues about whether it's Matthew or Mark, but um, Mark is arguably the, the first gospel written, and I want to I wanna open up to just verse one of Mark, because he describes this in such a beautiful way, but it's kind of veiled in modern English. Mark 1.1. 1, 1. The beginning of the gospel or the good news about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's it. This verse right here is actually chock full of revelation and culturally inflaming words for anyone living in that day and age. The word good news is um, euangelion. And euangelion is actually what the Romans would bring back whenever they conquered a region, they would come back with the euangelion, the good news that we have conquered this region. And so Mark in this moment is actually poking the bear, which is Rome. He's poking Caesar right in the eye saying, you might think that you have the euangelion, but I've got the best euangelion of it all. And that is that this one true Messiah, this one, is going to defeat every domain of darkness. This is the best news of all good news. This is glad tidings and good news for the whole world. And he calls him the Christ or the anointed one. At that point, the only person who was called that was King David. And so again, Mark is telegraphing. This is chock full of revelation. He's saying that this is the new anointed one, the only, the one who's come of the house of David. And then he uses the word son of God. And for us in modern America, we're used to hearing Jesus being called the son of God. But back then there was someone else who was referred to as the son of God. That was a term that was reserved. It's a Roman imperial title. It's reserved for the emperor and the sons that would come after the emperor they were named the sons of God because they had this delusional idea that they were born divine. And so Mark in this moment is saying, this is the best news of all. A conqueror who will defeat all darkness through laid down love is the anointed one of David. And he is more powerful than any emperor that Rome has ever seen. He is the one true son of God. This one sentence could get Mark killed. 
I want to end just by reading a couple verses that sum up the, the glorious good news of this season. I mentioned how uh, all around the world, traditional uh, churches and uh, all, I'm talking Eastern Orthodox, Catholic churches, they all have what's called this thing called the, the common lectionary. And they have verses that they read every Sunday. And I, I, I like to bring that into focus in the Advent season because these verses are being read universally all around the world in this very moment when we read them together. This is Isaiah 35, verses 1 through 11. <clears throat> Last week, we talked about how there would be a voice crying in the wilderness and how the wilderness is a parched, dry land. It's a simple place where the most important thing is just finding water and a meal. It's a place where there are no distractions, right? And that's where John the Baptist is calling from. And then I love juxtaposing that reality with this verse that's prophesying the coming of the Lord. This is Isaiah 35, 1 through 11. In the wilderness, and the, the wilderness and the dry land shall be glad, and the desert will rejoice and blossom as a rose. It will blossom abundantly and rejoice, even with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given unto it, the excellency of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of Jehovah, the excellency of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and strengthen the feeble knees. Say to them, Say to them that are fear of a fearful heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with recompense of God. He will come and save you. And then this is signs of the coming kingdom. These verses here. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. The lame will leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute will sing for joy. Jesus did every single one of those things, didn't he? For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes and a highway shall be there. It will be called the highway of holiness. The unclean won't pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they're fools, they'll not go astray. Praise God. <clears throat> no lion, no lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed of the Lord walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads, and they shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. I think there's one more, isn't there? And the king of Assyria. <laughs> That's not the right one. <laughs> we'll just end there. There's one more verse I want to go to. Psalm uh, 146, verses 5 through 10. Don't put your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs and he returns to the earth, on that very day his plans perish. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope 
is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, gives food for the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. These are prophecies of what Jesus is going to be like. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations. Praise the Lord. Praise the Father because he sent the Son to overturn the rule of Satan and reconcile us all back into relationship with God. See, Jesus came like the returning tree of life that we didn't have access to anymore. And he said, take and eat of me. And now we get to live forever with the lover of our souls and know that we have been brought back into the kingdom of heaven to demonstrate the rule and reign of this good king. Amen. Can we stand together and pray? Thank you, Lord, that we get to love these lost little ones all around us. Love from a pure heart. Thank you, God, that we get to be ambassadors of reconciliation, bringing people to relationship with you, not counting their trespasses against them. Thank you, God, that you are not one who keeps a record of wrongs, but overlooks in the name of love. That you are one who doesn't focus on judgment, but extends mercy. Thank you, Jesus, that you came to bring the kingdom, to undo the domain of darkness, and that you transferred us from the domain of darkness into your kingdom. We thank you that you've set us free from our fear of death, so setting us free from the rule and reign of the enemy. I pray that in this season, we wouldn't just be reminiscing and it wouldn't just be sentimentalities, but we would be gripped with the weight of the glory of the gospel, that we would see you in new ways, in fresh ways, that it would be as a return to first love and beyond. I pray for unity and reconciliation in our families as we gather to feast. I pray for the prodigals to come running home in Jesus' name, that they would remember the goodness of the Father and how you provide even for the servants, that they would look at the pig slop that they're surrounded by and remember how good your house is, Father. We pray that everyone would feel your love this month, the one who leaves the 99 for the one, the one who searches diligently for the lost coin, the one who runs off the porch for the returning son. We thank you, God, for everything you've done, Jesus, for everything that you are doing and for everything that you're going to do. In Jesus' name, amen.